And now I'm very pleased to introduce a longtime friend of Socalo, actually one of its first funders. Um, so be nice to him, Mr. Roberto Suro. Roberto Suro directs the Tomas Rivera Policy Institute at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy and holds a joint appointment with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Previously, he was the founder and director of the Pew Hispanic Center in Washington. His latest book is Writing Immigration, Scholars and Journalists in Dialogue. Please give a genuinely warm welcome to Mr. Roberto Suro. It's uh, really marvelously appropriate that we're here tonight on the 1st of May. Um, it, it's a date now infused with meaning in the history of immigration to the United States. Um, seven years ago on this day, May 1st, 2006, um, immigrants and their supporters rallied in cities across the country as they have um, every May 1st since then, including today. Um, then the object was to protest uh, a highly punitive law that had been passed through the House of Representatives uh, and to defend a, demand a comprehensive immigration reform that would include a legalization program for unauthorized migrants. Um, those May 1st rallies um, in 2006 marked the end of a, pro a season of protests that had begun here in Los Angeles uh, some six weeks earlier with the March of a Million. Um, the immigration spring of 2006 um, in some ways uh, was one of the greatest civic mobilizations in, in U.S. history. Uh, more people had took to the streets of more cities uh, over a concentrated period of time on one specific policy issue than ever before. Uh, moreover, this happened with little coordination, organization, or leadership. Um, it was an extraordinary and mystifying series of events, um, and for some of the same reasons, disappointing in its results. Um, millions of people in the street, May 1st, white shirts, American flags, uh, peaceful protests, parents and children, immigrants and natives on the National Mall in Washington uh, and on Broadway in Los Angeles. Um, for years, uh, it seemed like this repeat event has been repeated on a smaller scale, but repeated nonetheless, um, with not much to show for it. Um, and nonetheless, uh, here we are on May 1st, 2013, anticipating a vote uh, in the Senate Judiciary next week um, on a, a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Um, I wanted to start our conversation by evoking those marches, not just because of the coincidence of an anniversary, uh, because I want to spend some time discussing immigration reform as a process of civic mobilization, a process of engagement, uh, a process of social change. Um, those marches of 2006 um, offer really an interesting contrast. Uh, there, it was quick and sudden. What lies ahead of us, and we're going to assume tonight that this legislation will be enacted, um, is a slow process, a long process, uh, but one that nonetheless will involve getting millions of people uh, out in public, out of the shadows, out into the light, uh, and involved in a process of civic transformation. Uh, there are three basic elements to immigration reform in the current version and just about every version there has been uh, for the last 20 years. Um, greater enforcement, 
new regulations on the future flows of immigrants um, and some kind of a legalization process for the current population of unauthorized migrants. Uh, we don't have all that much time tonight, so we're going to focus primarily and pretty much, I think, exclusively on legalization. Um, and not as a political process. You know, there are stories every day about what the vote counts are and what the prospects are in the Senate and the House, um, nor necessarily as a legislative process what the details are of, um, of the different provisions, uh, but more as a social process. What happens when 11 million people move from this kind of outcast status to membership in our society? What happens to them? What happens to their families, the schools, the jobs, their landlords? What happens in their communities? What happens to us? Um, this is an important question for California because this state is home to the largest number of unauthorized migrants by far. Um, and it's most important of all here in Southern California, uh, where there's the largest concentration of people who are likely to be affected by this process. Um, you can begin by thinking about just the process of registration itself. Um, this is going to be a great civic undertaking. Um, it's going to take 13 years before people move towards naturalization. Multiple stages of, uh, of registration, of going through status changes, multiple challenges, multiple changes in the way people live. Um, and as I said, it's a process of incorporation, not just a change of immigration status, um, not just a bureaucratic process. Uh, we know this from prior legalizations here prior, and legalizations in other countries, um, that this changes the way people live, changes the way they raise their families, the way they interact um, in, with, at many levels with our society. And the question is, how does this change California? How will it change us? How are we affected? How will we be involved um, in this? Um, there are going to be challenges at the very beginning um, in organizing a process for moving that many people through all the bureaucratic hoops they're going to have to go through uh, in order simply to get the first level of provisional status. Uh, that in itself alone is going to require the building of a kind of infrastructure we haven't seen um, to deal with immigrants in the United States any time in our recent history. Um, think of 11 million people and think of how many hours of processing time. How much time will it take to, to reach these people, uh, make them understand the rules, help them get their papers together, help them put an application together, help them uh, pay the fees, help them through this entire process um, that again goes through multiple stages. Um, that in itself, it's something that we're studying at uh, the Tomas Rivera Policy Institute now, um, because itself becomes a really interesting process of social organization. Uh, they'll involve many, many more people than just the applicants. Um, you think about this as a first step, um, then moving to regularized status and eventually to citizenship. Uh, and you're talking about a very long process of engagement. Um, with this, uh, this population, their families, the people around them. Um, you know, life in the shadows has often been mischaracterized um, as 
um, individuals who have no connectivity to society. But we know that the unauthorized population has got um, remarkable degrees of connectivity <laughs> among family, among communities, among different kinds of organizations. The question is how are we going to build ties between those, that kind of connectivity and what we consider um, the more traditional forms of civic infrastructure uh, in our city, in our county, in our state. Um, this, um, so we're, the questions um, I want to talk about today um, go beyond simply how the changes in immigration status. Um, how do we make a success of this process? What, what can we actually accomplish through legalization other than simply taking people who are out of status and giving them a piece of paper? Um, what are the byproducts of that process? What does California look like um, after the, the unauthorized population gets legalized, two years later, five years later, um, 10 years later? Um, so um, in order to answer this question, we've got uh, uh, an unusual panel, an economist, an anthropologist, and an engineer. This sounds like the beginning of a bar joke. But um, what's interesting is none of them are actually practicing um, their chosen professions. Um, um, so let me introduce uh, our panelists here, and we'll start the conversation. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them um, in the order they're going to speak, which is going to be starting at the, uh, the far left. Um, I, I can't give all of their titles, because we would be here all night. And if we started talking about all of their books and publications and grants, we would never, we'd be here until next week. Uh, briefly then, uh, Manuel Pastor is a, a professor of American Studies and Ethnicity um, at USC. Uh, he also serves as the director of two important research and social mobilization institutes there, the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, uh, and the Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration. Uh, he is an economist by training, has been uh, as taught at Occidental and Santa Cruz. Uh, I've said this before in introducing Manuel, is one of the most committed intellectuals I know and somebody who I'm very happy to have uh, as a close friend. Um, Manuel Marcelo Suarez Orozco um, is a dean of, and I've got to get the full title of this school, the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Um, recently arrived to Los Angeles and still very much getting lost when he comes to downtown. Where are the uh, but he doesn't know where he is, and he also doesn't know how to drive because he used to live in New York um, where he was a professor at NYU for many years. Um, the, the book that Gregory uh, happily mentioned as my latest, uh, I co-edited with Marcelo and uh, Vivian Louis at, at Harvard. Um, he is, uh, Marcelo has, has done uh, uh, a great many studies, and, uh, but is, um, is, I think, memorable in this um, context for uh, a project that's conducted with uh, his wife, Carola Suarez Orozco, who is also at UCLA now, um, Learning a New Land, Immigrant Students in America, uh, a truly landmark study, not just of the educational process, but of the psychological process of being the child of an immigrant in the United States, uh, something that has led to a, a great many important insights, um, both theoretical and practical. Um, and finally, um, we have uh, 
um, on my immediate left, um, Gil Ojeda, um, who is the, uh, the director of the California Program on Access to Care um, at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Um, he's the engineer, Marcelo is the anthropologist, and Manuel is the economist. Um, uh, Gil was uh, born and raised in Chicago. The first piece of information he'll offer you, given a chance, is um, a Dejano by uh, upbringing, um, and has spent the last um, uh, 23 years working on um, evidence-based solutions to policy programs. Um, CPAC provides technical assistance uh, to policymakers in Sacramento. It's funded by the University of California. Uh, it's an extremely unusual and important effort um, to uh, provide um, effective approaches to policy issues that, um, that deal with the Latino population in particular and to uh, public health issues in general. He's also uh, been an important part of a very interesting um, effort, the Binational Health Week, which is um, a collaborative program uh, with the Mexican government that's been going now for about a dozen years uh, and produces one of the, the, the most important transnational gatherings every year uh, of people involved in the immigrant phenomena both here and there. So I'm going to start um, with Manuel Pastor and, and ask him uh, to help us understand the scale of this undertaking that we're, we're discussing here. Um, his organization, the, the Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration, is about to publish uh, a, a really interesting study that I've been privileged to see in draft. Um, examining the population of unauthorized migrants in California. Um, it really is going to provide very important insights at uh, this moment of policy change. Um, it also includes some very, uh, some, some great windows on uh, the, what the impact of this process will have in um, employment and other phases of life in California. So Manuel, why don't you get us started? Great, thanks a lot, Roberto, and thanks to Zocalo and everyone for being here. Uh, in preparing for this, I was trying to figure out what length the three of us, except for the fact that we're all Latino males, which is, doesn't argue for a lot of diversity here. Uh, and well. But what I, and old, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. He's, he just said, and we're older as well. Uh, but I now realize that because we're all academics working in a field not our own, we're all undocumented professors, and that makes us <laughs> part of this great event. Um, yes, this uh, coming week, and one of the reasons I decided to do this is we're releasing a report uh, co-authored by myself and Professor Enrico Marcelli, who I think might be in the audience, uh, who's right back there, uh, and who's from San Diego State University, called What's at Stake for the State? Undocumented Californians, uh, Immigration Reform, and Our Future Together. Uh, we have beautiful infographics. Again, the report will be out next week. The week after, it will be made into a major motion picture. <laughs> We've already negotiated the rights, and I'm going to be portrayed by Antonio Banderas. <laughs> so I'm not that old. So uh, let me give you a few numbers before I do. Just one thing I like to say before I get started speaking. Um, if my voice breaks or sounds a little bit harsh, it's because I have a speech disorder called spasmodic dysphonia. It's what Diane Reams has, so sometimes the voice is a little harsh. Uh, don't worry, it gets treated once a month with Botox. 
<laughs> Believe it or not, because that's how we treat everything in Los Angeles. So, <laughs> so what's what's interesting about the this is going to be a very significant thing for California. Now, California definitely has multiple interests in terms of immigration reform. We've got the Silicon Valley and its desire for high-tech workers, and that'll be an important part of the reform. Uh, we've got the agricultural industries and their desire to have a guest worker program and a rapid path to uh, legalization for agricultural workers. And we've got a large set of communities that are very interested in all of the family reunification provisions that may be gutted, really, as a result of this reform. But Roberto is correct that one of our biggest interests has to do with what's going to happen with the currently undocumented or unauthorized population and whether or not there'll be a path to legalization and a roadmap to citizenship. There's 11.2 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, but over 2.6 million of them live in California. Now, you may ask, how did we figure out these estimates. Uh, for the nerds amongst you, we combined a residuals technique in which we look at the flows of migrants versus what the American Community, Service tells, community Survey tells us who is here. Uh, and we combine that with a community-based probabilistic survey strategy to then designate everybody in the census. And we put that on a pooled three-year sample of the American Community Survey. And if you didn't understand that, Trust me, <laughs> it was a lot of work and we think we're right. So there's about 2.6 million uh, undocumented uh, residents in California, more than 900,000 Angelinos in Los Angeles County are undocumented. And the striking thing when people hear those numbers is they tend to think a few things about them. You know, number one, they must be recently arrived. Uh, more than half of the undocumented in Los Angeles County have been here longer than 10 years. So it's really a very established population. Of the 6% of households in California who have the head of household being undocumented, more than 70% have a citizen also living in that household. So a lot of mixed status households. And perhaps the most striking figure, I'll tell it to you for California and then for Los Angeles. For California, 1.5 million of our children have at least one undocumented parent. More than 80% of them were born in the United States, those children. For Los Angeles County, nearly half a million of our children have at least one undocumented parent. Uh, and about 83% of them, those children were born in the United States. And that constitutes more than 16% of our children here in Los Angeles County. So one of the things we tend to think is we have an image of undocumented residents as people who are standing outside of Home Depot uh, looking for jobs. And we don't realize that they're important family members, that they're heads of households, that it has a big impact on their children, and that their authorization will not just have an impact on their earning ability. One of the things we do in this paper is look at some estimates
benefits of what the gains and income might be from a full path to citizenship for these residents. And at a minimum, it's probably about 15%. At a maximum, it's probably about 25% if they're able to secure a path to citizenship and the benefits that that brings. But it also just has really important impacts, and I know that Marcelo will talk about this, in terms of the kids, how they're going to do in schools, whether or not their parents are going to feel like they can be engaged at the school place uh, and be engaged with uh, the parents. So we all have a big stake in getting this right. This is something that all Californians have an interest in. It's something that all Angelinos have an interest in. And let me just close my opening statement with a quick story. Before I left Santa Cruz to come to Los Angeles, a couple of nights before, there was this great meeting. It was organized by community-based organizations. And there was a low-income area of Santa Cruz County trying to get the County Board of Supervisors to put in a community center, trying to get the community college program to build in a program into the junior high as a pipeline, uh, and trying to double the number of English as a second language classes in that particular neighborhood. And that night, 200 people came. Community members got up and spoke. and. The county agreed to build the clinic or the community center. They agreed to double the number of ESL classes. They agreed to create a pipeline from the community college. And one of the people who got up and spoke was the president of the PTA where my kids went to school, who was a Mexican immigrant who spoke in English. Now, I don't know how many people know what an absolute miracle it is to have a parent, a male parent, who's head of the PTA. You know that's a miracle, right? <laughs> so we were so like incredibly proud. He got up and spoke, and you know I just felt like leaving that night, this meeting, that this is what democracy looks like. This is what America looks like. And that night, Immigration and Customs Enforcement picked up this man and deported him and his wife, stranding his four children, including a daughter who was in high school, who was one of the highest performing kids in that school, nearly a class valedictorian because he didn't have his papers in order. He was a homeowner, he was a business owner. This is what people don't realize about undocumented immigrants. Homeowner, business owner, had been in the country quite some time, his daughter was doing well, and again, he was president of my kids' BTA. We don't realize the families we're currently splitting apart by our over-enforcement, and we don't realize the families we're gonna benefit if we get this reform right. Thank you. Marcelo, I want to I turn to you next um, to talk about the, the phenomena of, uh, of illegality, of unauthorized status in terms of families and children in the educational trajectories. Um, I'm interested in, in, in what, some of what you've learned about the effects um, on children of living in households where a parent is vulnerable to the kind of circumstances that, that, that uh, Manuel just described. Um, and and what, what impact that, changing that is likely to have in terms of educational trajectories and, um, uh, in this state. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It's a real pleasure. Uh, to be a part of this conversation. I want to thank Socalo. I want to thank my, my colleagues uh, in the podium and the, the members of, uh, of the audience. It's, uh, it's truly great to be back uh, 
in Southern California after a 20-year detour to uh, New England and, and New York, and I'm just simply delighted to be back, uh, to be back home. Um, of course, what Manuel describes is the architecture of <laughs> the building that no high-income country in the world has managed to build well. That is, how do you manage the transition of what is now the fastest-growing sector of our child and youth population, the children of immigrants, to acquire the, the, the skills, the competencies, the sensibilities that will be required in our economy, in our society, in our culture uh, moving fo forward. No, no high-income country in the history of the world has taken on this challenge successfully. Educating an ever more diverse cohort of young kids coming out of the shadows, the shadows that Manuel uh, articulated for us, will be an enormous undertaking. Um, the issues that have been examined in the, in the scholarly literature are varied, they're profound, and the, the echoes, the, the, the kinds of the ripples that the unauthorized uh, status confers on children, the vast majority, as Manuel uh, indicated, citizen children. These are children, Hannah Arendt, in the unforgettable chapter six of the anatomy of, of uh, uh, on, uh, uh, authoritarianism, talks about the right to have rights. We have over five million children in our country, the vast majority of them citizen children, who day in and day out lose the right to have rights. What this translates to is very um, um, uh, scary and measurable. By age three, children growing up, citizen children growing up in unauthorized households begin to show cognitive delays. Uh, Hiro Yoshikawa at Harvard with, with a team at UCLA uh, and a team at NYU, we've conducted the large, probably the largest study of its kind, looking at the sequela of unauthorized status on children, citizen children, um, uh, children who themselves don't have, uh, don't have papers. So there are matters pertinent to cognitive, socio-emotional, and uh, the kinds of relational, cognitive, and behavioral engagements that are most predictive of what will happen to children moving forward as they begin, if and when we regularize their status, come out of the shadows. So we are living in a universe where millions of children are de facto, but really, uh, citizens of our society, they're English-speaking, the vast majority of these kids are moving into English very rapidly, they're also losing their native languages, by the way, uh, and who find themselves de jour without the kinds of papers that are required to ease, uh, to ease the transitions. Uh, connecting with this, our fastest-growing sector, of our child population will require a very proactive, muscular, intelligent set of undertakings 
You know, Gramsci said, I'm optimistic by, I'm optimistic by will, by pessimistic by intelligence. If you're intelligent, you have to be pessimistic today because this is in the context of the perfect storm where our state is withdrawing from investment in what will matter most moving forward, giving our kids, the, again, the population that will matter most moving forward, demographically speaking, according to what Manuel's research has told us over the last 20 years, most. How do we give these children the higher order cognitive and metacognitive skills, the linguistic competencies, the cultural sensibilities that will require to engage in a globalized economy that is very, very different from the kinds of economies that, uh, in a way, articulated the mass education system in our country. So we're facing the perfect storm. We're facing a, tr a, a tremendously transformed demographic at a time when our education system really isn't able to meet the demands of a world that is increasingly interconnected, is increasingly miniaturized, is increasingly fragile. That will be the challenge of our democracy moving forward. How do we connect with these children so the children can become citizens, they can become members of the family of the nation, and they can become productive, engaged workers in a 21st century labor market? Gil, um, two questions. Nestled questions. One, let's talk about the, the area of health policy in particular and what, what it's going to mean um, to, to if, you, um, if, if people have status, have papers in terms of their access to health care. Um, and I'm interested in, in, in emphasizing a, a, a Los Angeles perspective. We were talking about uh, this before the event, um, how Los Angeles County is unusual. Um, in, the, in the way it's treated uh, immigration already. So let's, let's uh, localize um, uh, the, the, the thought as well. well you know, let me start off first by saying that we're fortunate not to live in an apartheid society like Texas. We are, we are, we are in California where over the last number of years the issue of Latinos and Latinos in power positions Latinos able to control part of our will, the state's will, in, the, in this great nation state of California, the eighth largest economy in the world. We are fortunate in starting off there. So I have a, a kind of an ingrained sense of optimism, both as an engineer, but also as someone who's seen California grow and develop since I arrived here in 1973. So we have advantages. In Los Angeles, as we know, to the detriment of some and the grief of others, okay, uh, Latinos have been a major force in L.A. County society and, this, and in, in the city of Los Angeles. What, what, what I believe this, this legislation, the passage of the legislation will do, and in fact, it will, it will further empower uh, both let un undocumented immigrants, but also those that are connected with them through families, through their communities, uh, to become a major force. And I believe that while it's going to be difficult, because literally, in this period of one year, millions and millions of people will have to apply to this process. It's going to be one year. That hasn't been talked about in the media. 
One year, well, they will have to apply. And, and, uh, and there will be very few exceptions made. But in that process, there'll be a mobilization process of community organizations, of public organizations, of even corporate entities. Because the corporate communities here in California and, and somewhat nationwide are actually behind this. They want to see a regularized, okay, they want to see an empowered uh, Latino workforce and, and probably a more organized workforce, probably more union organizing. People will not be, have to feel like they're in the shadows. They'll be legal. They won't be immigrants. I mean, they won't be citizens. They won't be legal permanent residents, but they'll be legal. So I think that's an important element. The other element that people don't understand yet, but these people will all be able to move back and forth to their countries. In the case of many of these immigrants, we're talking about eight, ten years and more where they haven't been able to go back to Mexico, for instance. They haven't seen personally their, uh, uh, their family back there. Suddenly, they'll be able to move back and forth. Now, how, how does that empower somebody? That, uh, you, you, you have value, and very often with Mexicanos, you have value because of your family, because of the community, because of your extended community networks. So I think we're going to see an empowered population that is ready to do the thing that has to be done. Let me remind you, and it was a reminder before, about this issue of, of how Latinos, young Latinos, organized in, in L.A. back in 2006. Literally in the space of three days, you had half a million people on the street, and you did it twice. How'd you do that? T texting, you know, not, there wasn't even Twittering around. You had radio stations, you had high school networks. That's the power that young Latinos have, and many of them, many of them having questionable legal status. So I, I, I believe that what's, what's going to happen here is you're going to have a society in Los Angeles and Latinos statewide that, w that are going to begin to engage as, as uh, uh, important to themselves, important to their families, and important in, in, to their communities. And only good can come of that. And I believe that we have uh, the, the enough infrastructure, just barely enough infrastructure in our communities and we have public entities that are going to feel obligated because they know in the end it's positive results. Uh, a good friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, over 30 years ago, David Hayes Bautista at UCLA, published a study. It was kind of a no-brainer. You know, and basically he said, he said, well, in the 21st century, you're going to have all these older white people. And you're going to have all these younger Latinos. Unless you do something special and intentional with this younger population, you're not going to have a, a, a prosperous society in California in the 21st century. We're at the edge of doing this, and immigration reform will be a major force in doing so. Let me just follow up on that for a second. What, what, um, what is going to be distinctive um, about the, the kinds of political engagement you see with this population? How will the experience of having been out of status, um, uh, color, uh, produce an attitude, produce a point of view um, in future civic engagement in Los Angeles? I mentioned one was the issue of, of, uh, of, organ of labor organizing. But it's also the issue of, taking, of, of making more, of have a say over your own institutions, whether they be schools, workplaces, or even public service agencies that have not been doing well 
by Latinos. Now, I think by and large, Latino, the county of LA does provide healthcare services to undocumented. It's an example of a, of a, of a, of a good governmental approach. It's not practiced across the state, believe me. Certainly it's not practiced across the country. But, but we've been willing to accept, and Latinos have been willing to accept, less than quality care. So there'll be more daily, weekly encounters of saying, I don't have to settle for this. And that's the idea of coming out of the shadows. You come out of the shadows, not only within you, in terms of your family, in terms of yourself, but also in terms, in terms, in terms of the society as a whole. An author that we, many of us know, a guy named Paulo Freire. I first encountered him in the late 60s when I was getting radicalized. And he talks about the process of, of developing power and how suddenly you identify that you can do it. And then you, have the, and you develop the framework for doing it. Okay, that's, I think, what we're doing, is we're getting into a process where suddenly the, the, the issues that Paulo Freire talks about in his book, Pedagogy of the Press, are going to be practiced out in a real and tangible way here in California and here in Los Angeles. Manuel, you've done a lot of work uh, on the ground with community service organizations, with labor unions, other community-based organizations. What kind of capacity is there in Los Angeles to carry out the, the task of, uh, of, uh, of legalization and, and the further integration of this a population, as you said, of uh, 900,000 people in L.A. County. Um, let me address that, but say just a couple things before addressing it. One is I was uh, very impressed that uh, Marcelo quoted both Antonio Gramsci and Hannah Arndt. I think the East Coast rubbed off on you while you were out there. <laughs> because stuff in New York. <laughs> I know. Because I was quoting Antonio Banderas and I was... <laughs> and I was planning on closing with uh, Ice Cube. So, because uh, that great song, it was a good day and, you know, it'll be a good day when this thing passes. But, um, so, now I'll get to the question in just a second. I want to say that one of the things we need to understand is also the diversity of the undocumented population. In California, 12% of the undocumented population is Asian. Uh, and uh, about 72% are Mexican. The others, there's a lot of Central Americans and stuff too. So this is extraordinarily important to the Latino community, but it's not simply a Latino issue. And I think that that's a very important thing. And I think that one of the things that's gonna be very interesting that will color what the implementation looks like and the sense of empowerment that, um, that Gil was talking about is the following. If I had told you a year ago that we'd be having a session in Los Angeles talking about the likelihood of comprehensive immigration reform, you would have laughed at me. If I had told you a year ago that a bunch of ragtag, undocumented young people would take something called the dream movement and essentially embarrass the president into signing deferred action, and the president would find out immediately that there was actually no negative political reaction to it, uh, he would have laughed at me. Uh, I think one of the things that is really interesting about this is that this is a process that has not been cued from above. 
It's being queued up from below. It's being queued up by these young organizers who really pushed on the DREAM Act. It's being queued up by immigrant rights groups. It's being queued up by businesses, you're right, recognizing their interest in these workers. And it's being queued up by labor unions who realize that the way that they're going to rebuild strength is by actually organizing these immigrant workers, so many of whom are undocumented, and will organize even more if their rights are protected. And I think that speaks to whether or not we're going to have the implementation infrastructure, particularly in Los Angeles. We're blessed here with a remarkably vibrant immigrants' rights movement, which has groups like CHIRLA, Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights Los Angeles, the Asian Pacific American Legal Center, and a wide array of others. But I think the problem is that this is not something just limited to immigrant rights groups. We've been working for the last three years with the California Community Foundation, which is really the LA Community Foundation, on a Council on Immigrant Integration, which has brought together business, labor, a number of others. I mean, one of the things we're the proudest of is that when the LA Chamber this year went to Washington to lobby for its interests, one of its top three interests was passing comprehensive immigration reform. And I think that speaks to the potential kind of public-private partnerships. But the scary thing is this. Immig citizenship and immigration services has never processed this volume in a single year. When the last big volume they processed was uh, when in 2007 they said they were going to raise the rates for naturalization, and so people bum-rushed uh, citizenship and immigration services to apply, they wound up with a backlog of about a year. I mean, that was adding a million, or really only about 700,000 new applicants in that year above the regular flow. What does it mean to add 11.2 million? I think we're really going to see that system potentially collapse. And I'm not sure that Congress is thinking through what the resources they need to put in. And I'm not sure either Congress or Californians are thinking not just about signing people up to change their status, but about what happens the day after, right? Are we going to have English as a second language classes? Are we going to have access to health care? Are we going to have job training programs so we can make sure this is a success? And we need to start thinking forward, not thinking backward. Yeah. Can, can I comment there? Yeah, sure. Because there's something specific. In the law itself, there is a provision that talks about uh, putting so many, uh, it's 50 million in one program and another 50 or so in another program that talks about the transition. Not enough. And there's a lot of us that are talking about other provisions. The other thing is the last time this was done under IRCA 1986, the then governor, Pete, Pete Wilson, actually put money into the naturalization process for a few years until he figured out that all these people were going to vote Repub uh, Democrat. And he stopped. But he did it for three years before he figured it out. I mean, we already knew, but, but he figured it out about three years later. So we, we plan on jamming this, this uh, our governor. Our governor that got 70% Latino votes and 70% of the vote for Proposition 30. So I think there's elements of the process. Again, being an optimist, I think there's elements 
that can address some of the issues you've talked about. No, but I think, I think those will be very important. And one piece of legislation I would draw people's attention to is State Senator Ricardo Lara has a very forward-looking piece of legislation calling for a task force on new Americans mm -hmm. that might eventually set up an office of new Americans. Because yeah. the other thing we need to be thinking about is this issue of immigrant integration. It's not confined to the undocumented, right? 50% of kids in California have at least one immigrant parent. More than two-thirds of children in Los Angeles County have one immigrant parent. So what the question is in terms of immigrant integration for all of those parents and all of those children is something the state ought to be taking a lot more seriously than it has in the past. Yeah, I mean, and, um, you know, on, on the, the note you were just raising, Gillen, and it's something, Manuel, you mentioned before, when you look at back at the integration, the, the, uh, the legalization uh, of 1986 um, and its after effects in Los Angeles, um, the number of organizations that are currently at the forefront uh, of immigrant rights and immigrant integration, Churla, Garacen, the um, Hermandad Mexicana, all of them were great, if not created out of the 86 legalization, they were enormously boosted. Uh, by the work that was entailed then. Um, and presumably, with or without the, the 100 million or so that's supposedly, you know, that's kicking around in this bill, you would anticipate uh, this being a transformative moment in this city in terms of um, the level of community organizing um, and social service agencies that are going to have to get involved uh, in a fairly, an enormously broad scale. Um, an elaborate process um, of bringing people in. Once, once you have contact with that many people, what do you do with that? Um, I, we have got a, a little bit of time before we're going to turn to you. And I want to ask uh, Manuel one um, on a slightly different aspect of this um, question. Uh, when you think about education in Los Angeles in particular, um, one of the changes that is likely to occur uh, if this bill is enacted um, is uh, a change in future flows to much more merit-based immigration, uh, largely favoring uh, international students um, who come to train at US universities, particularly in the STEM fields, um, largely favoring uh, international professionals uh, in science, technology, engineering, and, and medicine. I realize that, or is it mathematics? Mathematics. Yeah, thank you. We can, it tell, was you're an not, M. We can tell you're STEM. not in STEM. I'm not a STEM. <laughs> I wish, anyway. Um, but potentially one aspect of this is uh, a competition between uh, native, the, the native children of the, the Los Angeles schools um, and international students uh, where you're going to be competing for you know, a, a, um, a, a position at an engineering school at USC or UCLA or Berkeley. Um, it'll be California kids versus competing largely with the world unless there's some kind of mediation here. Um, you were talking about that moment of globalization. I want you to address what, how this uh, affects um, the, ed the higher education prospects um, of immigrant children here uh, 
in contrast, in competition with future immigrants arriving as adults. Uh, I mean, are we setting up um, something where, where the kids who are going to be legalized here are now going to confront a much greater competition uh, in the future? So I, I think you met Marcelo, not Manuel. Yes. Did I say, I'm sorry, I was staring okay. at you the whole time. You, you rebaptized me as Manuel. So. <laughs> I did, sorry. Um, and, I, and, I, and I made mathematicians and a doctor. <laughs> I mean, two M's in one. Yeah, all right. It's, it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> um, so it will intensify a feature of the, the flows of immigrants over the last two generations that in a way has been unlike anything we've ever seen in U.S. history. And this is something that is not really fully metabolized or fully conscious. And that is the U.S. has an extraordinarily uh, dimorphic, let's say, flow of new arrivals. Never before in the history of the United States have so many highly educated, highly skilled immigrants arrived in such uh, high, high numbers. The average Indian in the United States is 10,000 times more likely to have an advanced degree than the average Indian in India. So over the last two generations, the United States has been immensely blessed by acquiring what my colleagues in economics, certainly my former boss Larry Summers, would call high quality, free of any investments, human capital. The doctors from Ghana, there are probably today, I think Anthony Appiah told me one day, there are probably more doctors from Ghana now in New York State than there are doctors in Ghana. So this is, think through yeah, that, right? It's African peasants. Yeah. It's African peasants who are subsidizing yeah. the education of doctors that you know, go on to practice in Westchester County, New York, one of the richest counties in our country. So this will intensify a dynamic that is already quite um, uh, new in, uh, in the recent flows of, uh, of new arrivals. You were at the Neiman Foundation with Dick Freeman at Harvard said you couldn't run the science labs at Harvard without these, these uh, uh, immigrants in engineering, in, in, in physics, in, uh, in chemistry. So I think that the u universities are going to continue to um, muscularly engage what I guess my former boss, the great John Sexton at NYU, called the Global Network University, which is a way of engaging right, in a kind of an increasingly miniaturized, uh, borderless higher education to have uh, continuous exchanges of scientists, students, engineers, STEM folk um, uh, coming into our country. And by the way, the children of those immigrants going back to the countries their parents left behind. The back and uh, forth flow is another more or less permanent feature of, uh, of this new immigration. So welcome to the 21st century. This is, this is much more miniaturized, this is much more integrated, and these exchanges will continue to transform higher education and the landscape in our country. So there we are, Br Briefly, because we're about to turn to questions from our, from our audience. So I want to put a footnote on that and on something else real quick, but the footnote on that is that there's often a thought around immigration flows that what we're going to need to do is to rethink and we'll get ourselves some of those high-skill immigrants, right? But I think one of the things people don't realize is that high-skill immigration and low-skill immigration actually go side by side. Because 
for every software engineer, there's an army of nannies and you know, food service workers and gardeners because they have no time to do any of that stuff, like take care of their own kids, right? So uh, what you find is that in places like the Silicon Valley, there's a very large, undocumented, unskilled population providing services. And we have a potential for a particular kind of imbalance in the future in that regard as well. Another important footnote, in this implementation phase, one thing that's going to be very important for community-based organizations is to not get swallowed up in service delivery. Because if you spend all your time delivering services, you're not able to do the organizing and advocacy that actually changes the system. And keeping that balance in mind will be very important over the next few years. Thank you. My name is Sandra Luz Gallegos. I'm a journalist and military reporter. And I would like to ask the panel how much of this has to do also against the uh, new laws of immigrants and the new movement of immigrants the uh, depression that the country is facing and unemployment. Uh, my question to you is, um, are we actually developing the structure to, so those new immigrants who are coming here and are going to be legalized don't face the unemployment that many that we are already here are facing? So let me say a political thing before the economics thing, which is that um, it's really surprising that this move around uh, a path toward legalization and a roadmap to citizenship has actually come up in a very deep economic crisis. You would not have predicted with this level of unemployment that things would have moved in this direction and that you would see labor, business, everybody coming on board about that. And part of it is that there's a recognition that immigrants are actually pretty conducive to economic growth. There are cross-cutting competition effects, particularly in unskilled workers in the United States, but they actually tend to be pretty minor. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, one, one really interesting uh, thing is if you look at the uh, polling data around immigrants, uh, whites tend to be very worried about immigrants. African-Americans tend to be kind of in the middle. Latinos tend to be the most open to immigrants. If you look at the economic analysis, it's Latinos who are currently in the country who are most hurt economically by new immigrants. They compete in the same market. African-Americans kind of in the middle. Whites actually benefit because of the low-skilled complementary labor. It's interesting. Makes me think that African-Americans are the only rational political actors in the United States. Um, <laughs> But what I think is happening is that what there's been a real sea change. And you'll note that the business groups are making this argument, immigrant rights groups are making this argument, labor unions are making this argument, that immigrants have high rates of labor force attachment, they've got high rates of business startup, they've got a lot of attributes which will lead them to generate economic growth. And so they're really being looked at not as an additive to an economic uh, problem, but actually as part of an economic solution. My name is Carolina Scheinfeld. I'm a project coordinator for Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. And uh, thank you very much for engaging in this conversation, for making us all think about this like so much in advance. Um, I couldn't help but worry about how well uh, some of you are very, being very idealistic about this cooperation and mobilization between CBOs, private industries, social services, and unions. Um, one part of the conversation is being left out, that it's the group of predators that are out there waiting for this as an opportunity to make money out of 
immigrants that just want uh, some hope. Um, this has happened before, it happened uh, with the previous legalization, and nowadays there are more efforts to combat unlawful practice of immigration law, but I think it's important to include this in the conversation. Um, and um, in addition to that, uh, something that we've seen from the, for as a legal services program, our hands are tied because unfortunately we will not be able to provide services to uh, these undocumented immigrants. Uh, so why they didn't think about this, like there's already a network of organizations across the country that could be providing services of quality, but they are not because of the restrictions. So just a thought there, so thank you. One of the lessons of the 86 program that gets lost is the degree of, uh, you know, it's notary fraud um, is what, it, what used to be known as of uh, notarios, uh, people who basically hang out a shingle uh, and offer services that an ongoing issue in, in immigrant communities. Um, and this creates an enormous opportu uh, opportunity for people to defraud applicants uh, when there's, um, and it is typically something that needs to be enforced at the local level. I mean, this is where um, LA County and particularly uh, the, the, uh, the prosecutors will have to undertake measures to police um, the, uh, the illicit offers of services. And there are lots of examples uh, of, of counties that have successfully undertaken campaigns against notary fraud when you have this, these kinds of circumstances. Were there any studies that have been done um, regarding the economic ripple effects of legalizing 11.5 million people? Uh, one of you mentioned the connection, you know, that the great majority are Mexicans. So I could imagine that's potentially millions of dollars for airlines, uh, potentially millions and millions of dollars for, you know, automakers and, and so forth and so on, that while there might be a, a cost uh, related to it, you know, because of the infra infrastructure that's going to be required to process all this, there's, I'm sure that these senators and politicians are also looking at that, as well as the political gain that they will profit from in the long run, i.e. the Democrats. There's been the studies yet, uh, I know that, that you're doing a study, I'm not sure if it looks at that issue yet, but, but imagine this though, that say, let's say for the sake of argument, there's going to be six million uh, Mexican immigrants, that might, might be too large a number, okay, that will be legalized. They're going to be going forth to, back and forth to Mexico. How is that going to affect the remittances? Remittances is the third largest source of income for, for Mexico. Is that going to go down because they're going to be going back and forth? Okay, is that going to go up because they're going to, their, their, their job possibilities are going to be more robust? Okay, are some of them, when they go back, are going to decide, wait a second, I'm not going back to the U.S. I want to stay in Mexico. That will happen as well. They've asked us, for instance, the Mexican government has said, well, what about the demand for health care services? They're going to come back here to, to Michoacan and Oaxaca and Zacatecas. Are they going to demand health care services? We said yes. So how much? We, we haven't done those studies yet, okay? Because Mexicans actually have fairly robust health systems, that are, uh, programs that have that are, that are, uh, been going on for the last 10 years. So there's a lot of those kinds of social demand, program demand, economics questions that are really just be, being looked at right now. So there are several uh, studies of the economic uh, benefits of authorization, particularly with a roadmap to citizenship. And in the report that we're releasing next week, our estimates for California is that it could lead to an annual boost uh, in income 
and spending of about five to eight billion dollars a year. Uh, that really understates what the benefits will be, uh, partly because uh, there'll be multiplier impacts and uh, some more technical reasons that have to do with the relationship of income to GDP. There are some numbers that are out there that are much, much bigger for the country as a whole, but part of what those numbers are doing is including the benefits of having more regular flows of immigrants in the future and how that would add to the U.S. economy. Um, there's a couple things, though, that are really important to consider. One is you're going to hear a lot of debates about what are the costs of doing this, right? Well, uh, there will be costs with regard to implementation. Those will probably be paid out of the fines. Uh, yeah. Second, there probably won't be a whole lot of fiscal costs because this is the stingiest immigration reform anybody's ever seen, uh, which is that for the first 10 years, you can't access food stamps, you can't access welfare, uh, you can't access the uh, subsidies for the exchange, health exchange to access health care. It's going to be a very fiscally tight at a national level that will impose costs on California because some of those costs will need to be absorbed. And it's really important to realize that what's being designed right now is penny-wise and pound-foolish. There's a great uh, book by Michael Fix. It's pretty technical, so only I would think it was great. Uh, <laughs> on looking at immigrants and welfare after the welfare reform in the late 1990s. And what they found was that immigrants who had access to welfare were able to become more self-sustaining more quickly, more durably, because it helped them transition through difficult times, stay in community college just a little bit longer to finish the courses, that kind of a thing. So I, you know, if we do an immigration reform that keeps people out of the healthcare system, that keeps them out of job training, that keeps them out of community colleges, that's actually not something that's wise in the longer run. And that's, 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 that's precisely why I remain, I think, the most pessimistic of my colleagues here because the day after legalization, Latino children will continue to be, we're not in Texas, but <laughs> Latino children will continue to be the most segregated children in the United States. Uh, when you look at the gender bifurcation in terms of our ability to connect with Latino boys, with African-American boys, we have a, uh, a disaster in the making. The children of the unauthorized uh, are children whose parents haven't entered the culture of uh, um, uh, gathering the resources for the children for which they legally qualify. And this underuse of the children has, of the services has a tremendous negative effect in the families, in the children. So, you know, doing it on the cheap will in the long term, I'm afraid, have very negative repercussions. We need to be much more proactive, much more muscular, much more uh, aggressive. And ironically, because this is done in the context of an economic uh, crisis, none of these uh, conversations are really viable moving forward. We're going to do this if we do it on the cheap, and the effects in the long term are not going to be beneficial. I should it note that at least part of your pessimism comes from the fact that you're Argentine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see the we, Holy Father uh, <laughs> shortly, and maybe we will pray together in... Yeah. Uh, Hello, uh, my name is Steve Nutter. My, um, 
My concerns are, although I'm an optimist, with the impact on the labor pool and the workforce that's here. You know, we're looking at 400,000 carved out on the front end, the expansion of E-Verify, continuous employment requirements, uh, an enormous tax uh, of, of fees that are going to be imposed on this community, all of which can have the effect of, of um, minimizing the, the advantages of this program and imposing an enormous cost also on our local economy unless we can address these concerns and even on the labor front unless we can address meaningfully issues like uh, improving rights under Hoffman Plastics and so forth, I think we're going to have real problems. Do you see this as a possible negative impact on our labor pool, on our huge manufacturing sector in L.A. County if we don't adequately address these issues? I thought it was going to be a, val a valuable uh, catalyst to labor organizing simply because the people would be legal, okay, and, would, and, and therefore would not be in fear of being thrown out of the country for organizing or even being fired because there's going to be also this mobility in terms of movement between jobs. So, and, and I think, uh, uh, Manuel, you took the same position. So I, I think, by, by and large, I understand you know, the kinds of issues and the, the neg potential negatives, but I think, by and large, the positives will, certainly in, in L.A. County, if that's what we're focused on, will, will uh, outplay the negatives. I mean, I think that part, that those are really great questions that got raised, and I think that part of what's going on is there's some hope, and maybe that's the optimism, that some of the deficiencies that are in the current proposed legislation would actually get addressed during the implementation phase. It's hard to know, and I think that Steve is right with the issues that he raises uh, about how this could actually slow down the immigrant integration process. And let's just remember, too, that there's a terrible set of compromises that are sort of built into this bill. Uh, and it's not even clear that this would actually get through the House. Uh, there's some really interesting research by many people, but it, one is Tom Wong from UC San Diego, who's been looking at, in particular, these deep Republican districts, which is fascinating. They have like almost no immigrants, right? Almost no undocumented, and they're the most like, we can't do this because immigrants are taking their jobs. It's like, have you seen an undocumented immigrant? Uh, so, and the places where these populations are more interpenetrated, we've kind of realized that, this, that these are who our folks are, this is what we need to do to be able to move forward. But so I think it's very difficult the way that the uh, districts have been gerrymandered in the House to assume that it will pass. Uh, however, I will, with Marcelo, visit the Holy Father, and we will pray together. Amen. <laughs> well, th th this morning, Antonio Villaragosa was interviewed on MSNBC, and he made a comment that most uh, other knowledgeable observers are saying, they say, in order for this to get to the House, through the House, we're probably going to have to violate the Hastu rule, which means that a majority of Republicans do get this done without the majority of the Republicans, but simply a majority of the House. That's already been done, violated three times in the last four months, and uh, most people believe that both that as well as a gun control measure, if it ever get, gets through the Senate, are going to have to happen that way. Yeah, um, I, you know, a couple of, of uh, final random comments on, on some of these last points without getting into the, the political handicapping, which I foresaw. We could have spent a long time. Um, and this was an exercise in optimism. It was a, it was a what if exercise. Um, but I thought that was, it was, it, it's worth somebody starting to think about what, what might happen if this thing actually passes. Um, on the costs, 
it will be self-financing, as all immigration benefits have been in this country now uh, for more than a decade. If you are foreign-born and you get anything, a legal permanent resident visa, uh, a tourist visa, um, what's going to be a provisional visa, a temporary work visa, or citizenship, you pay for the entire bureaucratic process. Um, it is built into the budget uh, of all immigration services that they are self-financing, they're not taxpayer-funded. And this process will not be taxpayer-funded. It will be the applicants who will end up, through fees, having to finance the entire governmental cost um, of carrying it forward. That's built into the system, and I doubt that uh, this Congress is going to go differently on that. Um, well, it won't, it'll never pass. It'll never pass if there's a fiscal hit on it. The 10 years of provisional visas are set so that whatever impact this has on services is past the Congressional Budget Office uh, calculations for the current budget, which where everything has to be calculated out in terms of 10-year uh, impact. So one of the reasons for making people sit around for 10 years is to pass this law with no calculation of what the ultimate impact will be on the federal budget because it'll never pass um, if there is an actual calculation of what the increased load is on federal services. Uh, and finally, the big question in Los Angeles going forward is going to be what are the engines of upward mobility for low-skilled workers regardless of their status? Um, you know, the last time we did a legalization, people ended up starting getting their documents just as the country was coming out of the 90-91 recession. Um, and we saw a period in the mid-late 90s, um, particularly the late 90s in California, where there was real growth in wages for low-skilled workers. Many of the beneficiaries of, that, of the ERCA legalization caught that upward swing in the late 1990s. We have not seen that kind of upward momentum for people at the bottom of our labor force in more than a decade, regardless of the last five years. Even before that, we weren't seeing real growth um, in a meaningful way at the low end of the labor force. That's a much larger question about what will, what will be in store for these people once they, they gain these first steps um, towards uh, membership in our society. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight. We'll see you in the courtyard uh, for some more. Thank you.